the man with the gun looked at the woman. She did not have a gun, but she had an eagle made of rubies. The woman with the eagle made of rubies, but no gun, smirked and dropped the fancy bird into the ocean. The man with the gun fired the gun at the woman who had just let go of the eagle made of rubies. The woman fell down dead. If you read with your ears, you will find words in your brain that you didn't have to put there with your eyes. Books are good and they should be understood, but please let a narrator be your guide. I wanted to give some time in the opening of this podcast, after the reading of the first passage, of course, to appreciate space, emptiness, time, the void, as it were. And we've touched on that previously, I know, but it's a thing that we should all stare into a bit more deeply, that constantly, lovingly, fearingly, questioningly, and curiously more often. I mean, who knows what you'll find in the void? Uh, maybe, maybe cookies, because it's like molasses. Or maybe souls in pain, because it's like hell and there's no redemption, so once you've done a bad thing, there's no point in trying to redeem yourself. Because there is no redemption. L- like I just said. So that passage was from this week's... Uh, a book, I guess, called The Detective and the Man with the Gun. A neo-noir kind of scandy, realist, downtrodden, no-fluff tale by author Casey Bloom. Now, I know that most of you, and, and I mean I, I can't presume all of you, all, although I think if you're listening to this podcast, you've already passed some sort of high bar for intelligence and, and coolness and, and just sort of knowing important stuffness. But, but anyway, basically, I know that most of you will be familiar with John Cage, okay? Famed composer who I, I think you may have heard uh, some of his work on possibly Star Wars and Jaws, but what he is perhaps most famous for is his seminal Seminal work, four minutes, 17 seconds. I, do you know what? I'll have to check on that. There, there, there may be multiple versions of, of varying lengths. And... Oh, you know what? I've just been informed. The definitive version is four minutes, 33 seconds. He is most famous for this work amongst the intelligentsia like myself uh, and, and my listeners then, of course. And, and Mr. Bloom's work reminded me of this genius. In fact, here, let's play a bit of John Cage, and I'll let you decide for yourself. 
Right? I, I mean, it, it's, it's like they were made for each other. If I made the film of the detective and the man with the gun, I would probably score it with John Cage. I mean, I'm not sure yet if I'd go with this early four minutes John Cage or the later, like, Jurassic Park John Cage. I, I suppose I'd have to see the visuals and then I'd see which timeline version of John Cage I'd have to use. But I do think John Cage is a solid choice for the film score adaptation of this novel. Y- you know what? Let's ask Casey Bloom when we talk to him. One more thing I'd like to talk about is there's a concept in art called negative space. Okay? It's, um, and this is, this is my interpretation of the concept, which, which I don't know if it's correct, but in today's climate, all points of view seem to have validity, so it's probably as correct as anyone's. It's the concept that what is not there, what is not foregrounded, is just as important as what is there. So I like to think of it like a comic book, you know, like how you'll see things like pain or electricity or, or some reaction drawn out with like, you know, like lightning bolts around someone, you know, like around their head specifically, for example. And you get that that infers a sort of tension or literal electricity, something you can feel and, and see even if in real life you wouldn't literally see it. Uh, but, like, maybe in your mind's eye you do. So, so that's as real as anything, I guess. So, you know, same here. Or, or in another way, it's like how Michelangelo talked about sculpting David. He looked at the block of marble, saw what should be taken away, and that was as important, perhaps more important, to the final sculpture than what was going to be there. Because, you know, it's not like Play-Doh. Y- you don't add to a marble sculpture. You take away. So that's what we have here, I think. A marble literary sculpture. And, you know, brevity is the soul of wit, someone said or, or wrote, and, and, well, and then other people said it, and, and we no longer know who to attribute it to. So this is Mr. Bloom's power. Precision. No fat, lean meat. You know, actually, I'll ask him how he likes his meat and if he likes meat metaphors. So let's bring in Mr. Casey Bloom. Um, so, Casey, um, if you can hear me, you, you can just flip that knob there, and, and, and it should turn it on. Uh, yep, oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, hi, there you are. Welcome, Casey. Or, or do you prefer M- Mr. Bloom? Oh, no, no, Mr. Bloom is my father. Please, call me Casey. Oh, right. <laughs> Indeed. Don't want to age you up too much. I understand. So, um, uh, how are you doing? I'm great. Delighted to be here to talk about my first book. Oh, your first book. Do you know, I didn't even look into your biographical details. Well, well done, sir. You'll, you'll have to excuse me if my voice is a slightly hoarse. I was doing an all-night readathon where I was recording George R.R. R. Martin's latest unfinished book, but I was doing it as a sort of prod where, where I'd get to the end and I'd be like, George, give, give me another line. Come, George, give me another line. And I'm hoping this gets him to finish it, so I'm, I'm just a little worn out. Uh, that's fine. I can do enough talking for the both of us. (laughs) Oh, well, great. Thanks very much. So let's dive right in. As you heard uh, when you were in the waiting room, uh, you you were listening, right? Yes, yes. Oh, good, good, good. I'm just so excited. (laughs) Look, if you need to say stuff, talk over Dwayne. He talks a lot. So as you heard, my big takeaway from reading this was a feeling of the space around your words. As evidenced by how, like, amazingly (laughs) short your passages were. I mean... This is more like, kind of like a pamphlet than a book, which leaves room for all sorts of interpretation. How did you come up with this concept for this void, this intentional emptiness? Well, first off, what authors won't tell you, none of them, literally none of them, really hard to write a book, just describing what it's like to walk down the stairs or what your hand looks like when you pick up an egg. 
it's just really goddamn hard. So what I thought is just strip it down to its bare bones. People are picking this up like in the airport after a long day. They don't need names. They don't need details. They just need the facts. Right. It's relaxing. They don't need anything to grip onto. Your book isn't the only thing people have done that day. Right. If you put in a name like Tony, they're like, I don't remember who Tony is. Oh, yeah. Were they the baddie? Do they have the gun? So I just stripped out all names. I feel like that's when I'm watching like a film with my wife, right? I'm always like, who's that? Mm-hmm. What, what, what was that? And it would be nice if, you know, it was just much simpler. Like this. Like I didn't have to ask who that was because it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of it feels like you really picture your audience and what would be best for them. Uh, and, and then you sort of write towards that style. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. You want a book that people can finish quickly, recommend to their friends, and their friends buy copies. And as I say, they're tired. Who has time to read a book? Yeah. We're now, you know, in micro-communication with Twitter and text. No one has time for, like, a big, chunky book. Right. Sorry, R.R. Martin. We need shorter novelettes now. Yeah, right. Novellas? Yeah. I've, never, I've only really seen that word written down. never really had to speak it. I mean, nobody actually knows what a novella is, right? It, it feels like a made-up concept. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Except, except that you're sort of embracing the novella, but the tweet novella. Yeah, the, t- the 280 characters rather than 140. Right. What do I have to get rid of here to just make it like succinct and interesting and funny or, you know, just basically describe as minimum as possible? Yeah. No room for ambiguity. Right. Who has the gun? The man? Right. Who has the ruby encrusted eagle or falcon or whatever the bird was? Right. You know, even going specific on the bird, that was too complicated. I, I think if there was a rewrite and there may be like, maybe I'll just say bird. Maybe I'll just say bird. It was a bird. Yeah. People yeah. people won't have trouble trying to picture the specifics of the bird. They'll just remember Shiny bird. Right. Shiny bird. Third draft, shiny bird. I'll say shiny bird instead of jewel encrusted whatever. Oh, yeah. So do you feel like you'd kind of take the sort of uh, George Lucas approach and if you could, you'd just keep editing the same book again and again, again, you know, as you came up with a new idea and a new version? It was like, uh, and apologies, because I know you cover everyone else's book, but like authors reading their own book, it's hell. Because... I've heard my friends who have written books, they go like, you really want to edit in the session, you're going to the engineer, can I edit this now? And they're like, no, this is the text. This is what's published. Yeah. You can't change it. Yeah. So if I could, yeah, if I could just lease a new edition every five years for the anniversary, yeah. Maybe maybe by the time I die, we'll have had the perfect version of my first book. Each one you can be like, the detective and the man with the gun, the better or more definitive edition. You can keep subtitling it. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. Only way to tell the difference is by subtitles. And, you know, at one point, maybe your title will be longer than the book itself. That would be quite the statement. Right? I mean, what an artistic piece. This is the hard bit. Get through the title. That's the hard bit. Then this book is real easy. I also found that sparseness, while I now understand it to be very helpful, I obviously also... I saw a lot in that sort of space. And so maybe this goes contrary to what you were just describing, but was that emptiness sort of around the text? Was it like a spiritual emptiness, like, you know, like a soul in need or, or more like a, you know, why can't I get a hold of a PS5? Uh, I think that there was a spiritual element to it. You just need to strip out names and we all like to think we're special, but like this book is no names. Yeah. It's talking about people in relation to each other or what they have. Because on, on a wider sense, it doesn't matter if you're Jeff or Wasim or Bensay. It, we're all just people yeah. with a car or a person with a house. Yeah. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Right. 
I get it. What you're saying is people, their personalities and specifics don't matter. They're just, they're just peoples. Yeah, you zoom out, we're all just flat. Right. Rather two-dimensional. Yeah, that's the thing. I think a lot of people are, are quite flat. I agree. You've heard of anechoic chambers, right? You know, like uh, completely silent places where you, you can't hear anything? Uh, yes, I believe I have. Yes. I understand that, that if you go in there and it's completely silent, you know, after a while you start to hear your, like kind of your own body noises, like blood pumping and, and like bloops and gurgles in your body. And, and, and so supposedly by like 45 minutes, you go insane from the lack of stimuli. So I, I kind of wondered, did you write in a chamber like that? Uh, yeah, I uh, I obviously couldn't afford to go to one of those, but I did turn off all the lights and just play white noise. Uh-huh. It's a way to really, like, let the very specific and laser-focused lack of description come out because, you know, you got nothing else going on, right? So it's just man with the gun. Yeah, and you don't want to go, as you say, insane, so it encourages you to write quicker because you're like, the sooner I get this chapter out, every detail is unnecessary because it's it's stopping me from getting out of this hell. Right. And also, you know, my understanding is that so many artists like to create boundaries mm. because it helps the creative process. And, and so in that way, you're creating the boundary of I want to get out of this hell. I don't care how I do it. Yeah. But is it kind of like how people will tell you anything when, when they're tortured? Could you, could you elaborate on that one? Well, you know, OK, so um, the intelligence that was gathered from what people called enhanced interrogation, some people would say was not valid intelligence because... When you're tortured, you'll just say anything to stop the torture. So essentially what I'm saying is you tortured yourself and then you just spoke whatever you thought people wanted to hear just because you're like, I, I need to get this shit over with. You you saying my book lacks true investment emotionally from me? Oh, no, I just thought maybe you enhanced interrogated yourself to cause things to come out. Oh, I, I thought you were saying it's of lesser value because I tortured myself. Hmm. Huh. You know, I could see that interpretation, and I do apologize if it came across that way. I don't think it lacks value at all. In fact, I think I'm trying to pull out more of the value because it's so profound to me. Ah, uh, okay, okay, right, uh, right, phew. Okay, okay, yeah, great, okay. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, I mean, yeah. look, I, I don't want to yeah. torture my guests. Yeah. Let's move off of torture. Okay, well, so the sort of quietness angle that was a, uh, a, a sort of inspiration and driving force. Now, on the opposite side is... A chamber made of loud, I guess we would call an echo chamber, which I also felt like that I was in one of those when I was reading your first passage. I mean, there is that emptiness, that space, yes, but there's also the repetition. You know, in other words, your book, it, it, it echoes, it repeats. It's like the need to scream echo into a cave that will echo. It's this ridiculously basic and obvious thing we all do. Yeah. But were you making a comment on how basic in like pumpkin spice latte society can be? Yeah, and obviously that plus everything echoes on a wider scale. Like everything that has happened has come before. You know, my book is in the neo nar tradition. People have shot people for riches before. There are as much as you would like to think original ideas. They're not. The Every idea you have is inspired by three things you're unintentionally paying homage to. So it was the repetition it builds tension, but it's also a comment on society and that Everything comes in cycles and has happened before and will happen again. That is incredible. I mean, I just knew. I just knew. You could just tell that there was there was so much more there that required deeper digging. There's a profoundness to, to your words, your style. I mean, we have to just acknowledge that everything, we're retelling the same story, just with our own twists. 
Precisely, yes. So let's switch gears then for a second and talk about your text's rich feminist undercurrent. So the man with the gun looked at the woman. Write nine words and you have set up the battle of the sexes, kind of the challenge of the genders and the inherent violence between them. I mean, I think this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Like, this could be an origin story if the origin story had a gun. And it kind of did, you know, if, if you take, like, the apple or the snake or being tossed out of paradise as a gun. Figurative smoking guns. Yes, exactly. You know, guns weren't around when whoever wrote the Bible wrote it. But, like, the idea is there, and we repeat that story and structure again and again. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, the gun is kind of phallic, though, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I see that in everything, but you got to admit, right? Barrel, opening, shooting that your average gun does. I mean, you don't see many guns that don't have a barrel and don't shoot. Uh, yes, uh, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I don't think that relationship was intentional. Uh, Look, the next book could be a woman with a gun, a woman who commits crimes. It's just in this one. It was a man with a gun. Uh-huh. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as I think Freud or Groucho Marx once said. Right. No, that's fair enough. Most things I say, I think, are just as reflective of my inner life as they are of your intentions, i.e. you may not have intended it. Once I've put the book out there, it's for anyone to interpret. Right. Who am I to say yes or no? But in this specific case, no. We put our own meanings into it. For me, that was putting a phallus into it. That's what I saw. The woman definitely it has no gun. That's what you say. So it, it kind of confirmed it for me. But you know, that's fine. We can, we can move on. Would you have read it differently if the woman had the gun and the man was shot? This is kind of what's interesting, possibly, right? And I may have interpreted that as a sort of, and like I said, I think this is a really feminist book. Maybe that was her taking control of the sort of mm-hmm. phallus power structure we have in society unfairly, of course, but like to sort of subvert it and say, look what I got now, right? What are you going to do? I got a hold of it. I mean, she certainly has the upper hand in that she lets go of the shiny bird. She does. And I thought the shiny bird kind of a metaphor for the, you know, for the female sex. And, you know, he's like, give it to me. And she's like, nah, dude, I'm dropping it in the ocean. So that's why I thought it was quite feminist, because it was like, I am taking control of the situation and not giving in to your violent male oppressive ways. I mean, the more you say it, the more I am convinced that subconsciously that's what I wrote. I mean, as I say, I was in that quiet chamber of my own device. So maybe that in the back of my mind did come through. Was just forced to strip down to your to your bare instincts and think about dynamics between gender. You don't sound like one of those toxic masculine dudes who's just like ladies make me sandwiches or whatever. You know, you seem like someone who'd be quite supportive of women. So I, I imagine that type of thing can just kind of come out. Yeah, no, fully supportive. I mean, uh, I don't know if you read the passage later, but there are there is a, a non-binary person who drives a car, yeah. and that is how they described. Uh, it just happens, as I said in this passage, the the man has the gun and the woman is shot. Exactly. We'll get to those passages. So yeah, let's talk about that when we get there. Again, I think this is like an absolute feminist Jeremiah. The power of your female character to essentially destroy capitalism before the eyes of this disbelieving patriarchy is, it's breathtaking. And look, I don't use that word often, but I will hear breathtaking. Okay, so good opening passage, right? Short, but that's okay. We see why that works. So why don't we move on to another passage? I I would love to have you read this passage because, you know, I kind of want to hear how it sounded in your head. Uh, yeah. Cool. If you could just um, go to page four. So that's about a third of the way through your book. Uh-huh. Where it begins, the detective with the headache. Okie dokie. <clears throat> the detective with the headache rubbed his temples, 
not to help with the headache, but because he was thinking. This case was so confusing. Why did the baddies want the eagle made of rubies? Who was the woman watching his office? Where could he find some goddamn clues? These were all very good questions. Ooh, wow. <laughs> so, now, some could argue that your writing, simple and to the point as it is, could be classed as mundane. But what it makes me think of are the cave paintings at Las Skalks. Skalks? You know what, I'll check it later. Like, why did they paint buffaloes and horses? That's pretty mundane, huh? But things are mundane when we take them for granted. And they are not mundane when we put them under a microscopic spotlight. So do you feel like you take a, a really rigorous scientific anthropologic approach to your writing? Uh, yes, I do. I, I do like to study humans like any good author. I like to people watch, sit in cafes and yeah. just really drill down into what they're doing. You know, what are they literally doing? They're enjoying a transaction in which they receive goods in exchange for money or vice versa. And then uh, I try and put that into my novel. So in this case, it's just a detective doing their job. What does their job entail? Questions. What are those questions about? Things that they don't know the answers to. Right. And the key thing a detective needs to do, find some goddamn clues. And this was one of your flourishes, right? One of the passages where you use some cursing because it needed it. Mm -hmm. It needed to emphasize how important that was to him and his identity. Correct, yes. Great. So I want to focus in on, on one part of that last passage, that, that part where he rubs his temples. Because like that part of the head is super weird, uh, rubbing on your head just a little bit and, and like down to your cheekbones. Nothing. It just it feels like, fine, whatever, a little higher in, on your skull, and it's nothing. But when you rub on the temples, and it's so sensitive and and you, and you really feel it. So what do you think of the temples and rubbing them? I mean, like, are they kind of a metaphor for something? I, I, I'm not quite getting it. Uh, well, they are sort of the gateway to the brain. Uh. You know, we can obviously never feel our brain, but the temples, right. when we get a headache, that's what hurts. And you try and, you know, soothe them or put a cold flannel on them, and that's the closest you'll get to touching your brain. Right. So in, the detective obviously is involved with thinking, and so that is them trying to touch their brain, get a bit closer, yeah. stimulate some thoughts. I think a lot of people have this urge to be able to control their thoughts because they often seem to be something that runs away from us, and you're like, why was I thinking that? And maybe we feel shame or scared or elated at something we thought, and, and maybe we want to reach in and be able to control them. Yeah, and certainly the detective wants to focus, like all of us walk around doing our day jobs and then also have to think, what am I cooking for dinner? Detective, lives are on the line. You don't know how many men with guns are out there. Yeah. So you need to make sure you're only doing one thing, and that's thinking about your job. Yeah. That's why you would need to go to your roots and touch your temples. Right. So as a character, maybe he, he neglects his family or something like that, but it's because he's got a job, and that is protecting people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. A detective is one of the most important jobs in the world. I think they say that. That authors, because we, we are the release, we are creativity, we are downtime for people. Yeah. So yeah, it's us, us and law enforcement. We're the, the two great superpowers of the world. They often end up on the lists of occupations that are best for new graduates, detective and authors. So that makes a lot of sense. You've, you've really nailed that uh, important part of society. So I wanted to ask you another thing about that passage. Who was the second woman. Who was the woman watching his office? Is she like a metaphor for all the women he's taken for granted in his life? Like, you know, mothers or sisters or 
some great aunt who offered him psychedelics and that could have changed the course of his life? This is a second feminist point. I didn't want to cast a woman solely as a victim. I wanted to equal opportunities. Women can be evil too. So in this case, it turns out the second woman spying on the office works for the baddies with the gun. Right. Right. Uh, spoiler. Sorry. Spoiler. No. Y- Actually, I think you have to say that before you say the thing. No, that's fine. I often feel like people come and listen to this after they've read the book anyway. I hope so. You know, as a sort of way to, to get a deeper understanding of it. Because a lot of people come away from the fiction that I share quite confused. And I'd like to be able to provide insights and uh, greater depth for mm-hmm. whatever their experience was. I mean, usually they're ecstatic, right? Because whatever they've read is just kind of like amazing, but they can't really latch on to the feeling of what it is. They don't know why they feel so good. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to another section of the book. Let's say uh, this page seven. Oh, this, this book is so incredibly short. It's awe-inspiring. And for that last passage that we read from the book, you know, I always try to do something uh, a little different on this podcast. So I thought for your book, since we've been talking about its sparseness, what if we fatten it up a bit? Mm -hmm. And what I was thinking is you could start reading from that passage on page seven, you know, the one where it starts the detective's friend. Mm -hmm. And I would just jump in at parts and, you know, fill in some other details. And, And, you know, we'll just see how the book looks, you know, how the passage might be if it had more detail. What do you think? Sounds great. Do you want me to pause after every sentence? Uh, no. Oh, okay. I'll just kind of jump in there. We'll, we'll make it kind of free flow and jazzy. Okay, sounds cool, Daddy-o. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, great. The detective's friend... Named Jay, who was a high school football star who hurt his leg and didn't know what other prospects he could do, so he followed a, a career path into law enforcement. Who is now a police officer, arrived on the scene. Which was wet, as most filmic scenes are at night, and oddly, there were several dead rodents, but no one seemed to pay mind to them, because no one pays mind to the dead rodents. Why did you ask me to come here, said the police officer to his friend, the detective. Who was also struggling with an upset stomach Possibly from being poisoned or possibly just from bad Chinese he'd had for lunch that day. The detective pointed to the warehouse they were standing outside of. Which was such a large, corrugated building. It looked as plain as any suburbia, but contained multitudes. Because, really, whoever knows what's inside a warehouse? The man who killed the woman is inside. But what does inside mean, he thought. It could be literally inside a building, or she could exist in the hearts and minds of all who had come to try and rescue her. He has the eagle made of rubies, but beware. Inside the eagle made of rubies is a bomb. But bombs can be literal explosive devices, or they could be a truth that opens up our understanding of the universe. The police officer friend looked surprised. Surprised for him was actually quite a solid, stony face. The kind that we often attribute to Scandinavian people. Perhaps unfairly, but you know, there was Stoic culture. And shouted, Which reverberated off of the hard surfaces in this rather industrial location, which carried on the anguish of that oh no off into the distance for minutes. So what do you think? It's a totally different book, huh? Yeah, I mean, Jeff being a former football star, beautiful detail. Nice. I I now think that you could pay that off. Like maybe at one point they throw the shiny bird. Jeff has to 
make the catch in order to save the day. Right. Oh my god, it brings it all back. Yeah. Uh. You drop a juicy detail like that, you want to pay that off. You want to use it. Does it inspire you at all to want to write a version that has more detail? Or, or are you like, no, my style is sparseness? Well, I mean, as I say, I've only written the one book. So I'm my style is not set, to be honest. I could go completely the opposite direction yeah so like this your first book is is what 12 pages and your next book i mean maybe you go for the like full 2000 mm -hmm. and you just fill in every detail possible then we'll truly see what the critics prefer yeah what's the one that nobody ever finishes infinite jest yes. or something like finnegan's wake finnegan's wake thank you that's exactly right treat it as a challenge i'm gonna write something more oblique and longer yeah because why not and it's another comment on life strip all the details out or have all the details in it that make someone unique. Yeah. Show how rich a tapestry life is, how special and different. Yeah. And even though everyone has come before, is inspired by the people who have been prior. Yeah, both in DNA and in culture and, you know, nature and nurture, the, the things that influence them. Everyone is a, is a little remix, their own little twist, as you said. Oh, right. The setting they want on their toaster. Right. How long they leave until the microwave beeps. Can they stand the beep? Do they leave it until it's number one and then they just press it pretending they're defusing a bomb? Everyone's got their own comfort level with the microwave and putting all these details in a book would truly reflect how different we are. Honestly, if you would consider writing a manual for a microwave, I'm telling you right now, I would pre-order it. Yeah, you know, I could. That sounds incredible. Because, uh, you know, usually they're in the style of this book. If I do it the way you suggested be a much more rewarding interesting engaging version of a manual because a manual is what usually three pages and it has diagrams this could be all words yeah be like ad copy yeah. envisioning the life you would have with this perfect microwave oh. Man. suggesting the meals and the context and the events you might bring it to or use it for. Can you imagine? Yes. How many people say, I didn't read the instructions or I, I never read the manual. And you're like, you should read the manual. It is incredible. This may actually give you some purpose in life. Cook. I don't know. Make some popcorn. I mean, you have co-ownership on this idea, so you will get credit in the acknowledgements. Uh, maybe talk to my agent about a little fee, uh, depending on where this gets developed. Oh, thank you. This might be my next project in addition to endlessly rewriting this book according to my whims. Honestly, this is why I love to do this work, because I love to be a part of the creative process that is very moving. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. Before we head off, if there's anything else you wanted to promote or talk about yourself or, you know, any other details we might have missed out, feel free. Just just go ahead. Have a little moment. Sure. I, I don't really think we unpicked the fact that the shiny bird that they've been chasing the whole time, by the time they have reached it, it is now a bomb. Now, what, what a little bit of trivia is that twist came from my seven-year-old because I was really in a rut. I'd reached this point. I wanted all the characters that were still alive and not in the ocean to meet yeah. and really had to try and understand why they wanted this bird. And of course, you want some sort of twist. And so, yeah, I just was talking to my seven-year-old, as I do, about the story, trying to tell it as a bedtime story to see if they know what happens next. Yeah. And then I could steal their guess. And then they said, it's a bomb. And I thought, beautiful, perfect. No one's expecting it. A bomb means danger. Yeah. And it might mean 
There's two birds, and this is a decoy bird. Holy shit, like from the mouths of babes, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, genius. I think this is actually the thing that we don't talk about what is actually genius about children, right? Is that they live in the state of play, mm -hmm. and they can access things that we just go, oh, no, that's too illogical, or that doesn't seem right. And you know what? Kids are like, I don't give a damn. Yeah, yeah. and they also live in the present. So, you know, all of the text is more or less written in the present. Yeah. As I say, it doesn't dwell on people's backstories their names you're just perpetually in the event as it is happening i really took that from my seven-year-old just that attitude of we are here now this is what's happening that's brilliant you don't need to know what happened yesterday or what's for dinner tonight you just need to know someone has a gun this bird is a bomb a woman is watching your office yeah just curious, are you setting up a little um, trust fund from the profits from this book for future therapy for your child when they're like, holy shit, my dad stole all these ideas and profited off of me? Yeah, and that's why I'm very keen to to write multiple versions to keep making that dollar. Right. Those sessions are going to be expensive. It's nice, right? You can live in the world of play, but you also, you're an adult. You understand you got a plan for the future. Yeah, and if, if I can't steal any more ideas from my child, I may have only had that one good idea to including your microwave thing. Right. So, you know, yeah. an author is always worried about perpetually running out of ideas. Will they discover me, you know, imposter syndrome? Yeah. So far, I've got one book down, and if my kid doesn't provide inspiration for a second, I will just have to, like George Lucas, keep churning them out. Yeah. Keep on telling the stories, re-editing that thing. I don't like this now. Let's add a dinosaur. I know Lucas is a bit of an inspiration. You got <laughs> for that. But you know what? He's kind of an inspiration for just like, whatever, do what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you, Casey Bloom, for this moving adventure in the void and voiding and feminism and restructuring masculinity. And and of course, I want to thank the BBC Symphony Orchestra conducted by Mr. Lawrence Foster uh, live at the Barbican for that snippet of their stunning rendition of Four Minutes, 33 Seconds by John Cage. That is all the time we have for today. So thank you all for joining us. And remember... Keep reading with your ears. If you read with your ears, you will find words in your brain that you didn't have to put there with your eyes. Books are good and they should be understood, but please let a narrator be your guide.